Okay, welcome to this uh, episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. Today I'm talking to Simona Variale, who is working at the University of Lincoln in the UK. And today we're talking about uh, culture and migration. Uh, Simona, welcome. Thank you. Uh, can you tell me a bit about yourself? So, um, I teach sociology and research cultural sociology at the University of Lincoln in the UK, and I work mostly on uh, music and migration as a kind of separate topics. So, I've done research on uh, consumption of popular music, and more recently, uh, I'm still doing research on uh, class inequalities among uh, EU migrants in the UK, particularly Italian migrants. Yeah. And you're, you're Italian yourself, right? I'm Italian myself, yes. And does that, how has that uh, helped you develop this particular research um, project or topic? Well, essentially, I moved to the UK for a PhD, and at that point I was studying music, uh, I was studying the consumption of popular music in Italy. Uh, but after five or six years in the UK, uh, I started thinking about... Uh, the experience of migration, of course, but also because I used Bourdieu's work in my previous research, uh, I started to think about uh, ideas of habitus, field, capitals, in, the, in relation to migration. Uh, and that's where I basically developed uh, the idea for my postdoc project about uh, class inequalities and class distinction among uh, post-crisis Italian migrants, essentially Italian migrants who moved after the economic crisis to the UK. Yes, so this is also one of the articles that we'll discuss later, which is comes directly from this project. So you also suggested this particular topic for the Culture and Inequality podcast. So why is this important specifically in a podcast and a course on culture and inequality? Uh, I think it's important because um, migration is not yet a mainstream topic in this area. Uh, but there is already significant research on the topic, um, particularly, particularly drawing on the work of Bourdieu. So in a sense, I selected articles that we could consider a sort of tradition, a sort of emerging tradition uh, of scholars who applied uh, ideas of habitus, capitals and field to different forms of migration, both EU and non-EU migrations, and who essentially explore class distinctions and inequality and how they manifest through culture in different uh, mig migrant communities. Yeah, I must say I was also surprised that um, to think about migration this way. I think it's really a new way of thinking about this. So it's interesting that, I, you know, we think about migration as, you know, uh, um, cultural and political, you know, economic and political, but very rarely cultural and very rarely in the context of uh, inflected by culture so much. So I really appreciate this sort of new way of thinking about culture and inequality and also you know, opening my eyes to thinking about uh, migration as you know, somehow also a topic for cultural sociology. Uh, so for me, this also was new and I learned a lot from this. Um, so that's already, um, um, I think, a, a, a new, a, for me, a new source of insight uh, that I'm also really happy to share with students. Uh, can you say a bit more about the specific articles that you chose? So very briefly, because we'll discuss yes. them at length later, but you selected three papers. So yes, um, this is pretty much the order of the papers I, I had in mind. So the first one is Caroline Oliver and Karen O'Reilly's work on uh, uh, British migrants in Costa del Sol in Spain. And the article is called A Bourdieusian Analysis of Class and Migration, Habitus and the individualizing process. This is essentially one of the early critiques of uh, late modernity theory, but using migration, which was kind of the ideal type of uh, the individualized mobile subject uh, who essentially invests in self-making through migration, for example. Uh, then the second article from Umu Terel is called uh, Migrating Cultural Capital, Bourdieu in Migration Studies. This is much more about really using Bourdieu's key concepts in the study of migration and is, is very much an article that uh, shows how using migration as a case study, we can very much think, uh, this, bring these concepts a bit forward in terms of theoretical development. It's perhaps the most challenging article, theoretically speaking, is very dense and uh, uh, even for Bourdieu scholars, perhaps uh, quite difficult to 
to digest. And the final article is something I published recently. Um, it's called Unequal Youth Migrations, Exploring the Synchrony Between Social Aging and Social Mobility Among Post-Crisis European Migrants. Very long title, I realize now. Um, and this one, again, in a sense expands the work, the work of Erel, of the second article, in terms of exploring um, um, the biographical dimension of habitus, capitals, and field, uh, but I also explore the intersection between class, culture, and aging, which is a topic uh, that remains very much uh, under-researched. So basically how social aging, the experience of getting older, uh, shape um, experiences and understandings of social mobility, upward and downward social mobility. Yes. So thank you. Yeah, well, what's interesting, what really surprised me when I read these three articles most is the focus on on individual experience. So what's really interesting, because both culture and migration and inequality tend to be sort of macro things where it's about big structures mm -hmm. and larger processes. And I think what's really nice and unexpected about all of these articles is that they really zoom in on specific individuals. Yes. And really explain all the mechanisms by looking at individual cases and their life experiences, their trajectories, their personal experience. And I think this not only makes the articles really nice to read, but also is, I think, really makes you think about how social processes, like these big things, how they manifest themselves in everyday life. So I think that was really what surprised me most. So what surprised you most about these articles? Well, maybe not about the one you wrote yourself, but about <laughs> the others. <laughs> no, yeah, I completely agree. And uh, the biographical dimension is one of the things I very much wanted to emphasize because coming from the study of music, my understanding of uh, operationalizing Bourdieu was much more about things like historical analysis or multiple correspondence analysis, uh, the idea that you have social positions and then you have the space of lifestyles. Uh, biography kind of partly upset that uh, methodological design because you have time. Suddenly you have things that evolve in time. So basically individuals with who have, yes, capitals, dispositions, but then these things evolve in their biography. And we don't talk much about that in cultural sociology, how uh, tastes, for example, uh, but also resources change uh, and develop through individual biographies. Um, so definitely it's something that I find surprising of this particular approach to migration and what can that can uh, tell to cultural sociologists more generally who work also in other areas. So as so before we move on to the text, I would like to ask you, so as a migrant yourself, how would you reflect upon this sort of personal experience of you know, time, migration, culture, cultural capital, because so there seems to be like, especially in the, the latest, the, your own paper, there seems to be like a biographical undercurrent, right? Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, one thing that the three papers in a sense share and other Bordiesian approaches to migration also show is basically migration very much is a key example of uh, the disconnection between habitus and field. So for those who don't remember exactly this concept, so the embodied dispositions that we develop growing up, they, fu they function in a nation state. So there is a lot of taking for granted stuff in the national space, which you realize only when you leave the national space and get it to, into a new one, which will have other fields, other institutions, all of them with their rules of the game, so to speak. So it's like you have to learn your habitus has to learn all, the, all these new games, uh, the games of the nation state, but also the games of the university, um, the games of the other fields you get engaged with. Um, so there is a lot of uh, fish out of water sort of experience um, and a lot of um, a lot of what is interesting about migration from this perspective is precisely the fact that you finally have social actors outside the fields in which they grew up. And this is theoretically very interesting. So can you tell me something about your own fish out of water experience? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's about a range of things. But for example, one thing that after almost 10 years in the UK, I, it's very trivial, but it's very revealing. It's the time people have dinner. So um, in Italy, I used to have dinner at 8 p.m., 9 p.m. 
in the UK, most of my colleagues, especially the colleagues I hang, hang out with, they usually have dinner around six, seven, which creates all sorts of complications when you want to organize something. So uh, if you want to invite them here for dinner, dinner has to be earlier. If you want to get a beer, is it going to be before dinner or after dinner? But then before dinner for me is very early, for them is too late. So all these kind of little complications that reminds you constantly that you are adjusting your dispositions to a new field, even if the new field is home after 10 years. But these little things remain very much embedded, very much embodied into you. Uh, so that is just one example. Yeah. But so I think it's interesting that, well, apart from the learning process or the sort of a new sort of habitus that you gradually acquire, I think one of the things that the three texts highlight is also that you, you know, what you bring from your own background uh, can be a disadvantage and an advantage, both. So also, could you explain this maybe also with examples from your own experience? So obviously you did well, right, in the UK. <laughs> so maybe there must have been something from your previous cultural capital that you brought that helped you or yes. things that worked against you. Can you? Yes. Uh, so do you want me to talk about it in a biographical way? So related? Yeah, maybe, yes. So I think maybe that would help to highlight the central themes of the... Because it's actually these themes, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at the cultural capital that you that you bring and how it is transformed and how it doesn't or doesn't work, but also how it affects. So I think actually, so if you don't mind, no, no, I sure. think the core themes could be... No, I mean, one um, thing yeah. that I think helped, and I can see the similarities with at least, well, with, with all the articles really, um, is of course cultural capital. Having done my degrees in Italy, um, even if I, I'm, I'm myself socially mobile in a sense, but I was already socially mobile in Italy. So when I moved to the UK, I had all the cultural capital institutionalized and to some extent also embodied of the, uni the university experience in Italy, which is, um, I, I, tend to, I, I call it uh, philological because uh, the education system in Italy is very philological. You learn a lot of things. The idea is that you will digest them. Um, some people completely lost themselves in that system, especially first generation graduates. But if you survive it, I think it essentially leaves you with a lot of cultural capital to the point that when I started my PhD, I realized I had read things that were supposed to be graduate reading, such as Foucault, uh, Roland Barthes, um, a lot of classics from the 70s and 80s in post-structuralism, for example. At the University of Bologna, that was kind of a everyday bread. Uh, that's the sort of stuff you have to know. Uh, the fact of knowing that already in a university context in the UK, I think it worked as an advantage because even though I wasn't British, I came across, in a sense, as a, let's say, bright, if I can. Sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, even if my... You brought, you brought European sophistication. Exactly, exactly. It, yes, it got exactly, read yeah. as yeah. European sophistication. It completely erased yeah. my class background, no one could recognize okay. my class background in the UK. They, they could just see Europeanness. That is definitely exactly. an advantage yeah. because immediately triggers the idea, in a sense, of the desirable migrant, um, mm -hmm. the high-skilled yes. worker, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the advantage. What about the disadvantage? Did you have disadvantages or things that you had to unlearn apart from uh, eating late? <laughs> uh. um, I mean. Part of the disadvantage, I guess, was about economic capital, uh, because I always, I basically made my way through education with scholarships, so I was always mm -hmm. concerned about scholarships and money. I was always thinking mm -hmm. about applying, to the point that when I realized that they called it neoliberalism in the UK, I had already interiorized it. So <laughs> it was kind of, a, it was an advantage on, on some level, but it was a disadvantage for me personally in many ways, because... Um, uh, for many, many years, um, I was very much just focused on work and migration kind mm -hmm. of made that worse until I think a couple of years ago when I have started kind of recovering space for myself, uh, which is not space for work at the same time and keeping the mm -hmm. two separate is something yeah. that I kind of, I'm sort of learning now um, and it takes work and so on. So I would say economic capital and the sort of mental disposition that the stress of not having enough of it uh, brings with it. Mm -hmm. um, of course, being away from home, um, 
uh, having to reconstruct friendships. At the same time, you keep your friendships in place, but that sort of transnational ties, which sometimes are kind of magnified in the literature, that actually also takes a lot of effort, is also time, is also labor, in a sense, emotional, mm -hmm. practical. Um, so migration, sometimes I like to think about migration in terms of uh, labor. It is really just work, work that you do on mm -hmm. top of other things, uh, because you want to keep yourself connected, not only to the new place, but to the other places that are important for you. And so... Yeah, I think, thank you. I think that's very helpful because also that, that's also something that struck me in the readings is that that migration is so it's it's comes with aspirations of making it somewhere with sacrifices. So it's really it's about mobility, about trying to create a better life, but that comes with with a lot of uh, stress and tension. So I think it also requires in, in sociological sense, it requires a lot of resources that you have to spend on just doing that. Uh, and I think that's something that's interesting to think of also in terms of culture. Uh, so what are the resources? How can you muster them? How can you make them work? When does it work? When doesn't it work out? So I think that was also very revealing for me to think of this indeed as an investment or something, an aspiration toward social mobility, which is, of course, refracted through all sorts of cultural processes. Uh, and so for me, that was really an eye opener. So I like <laughs> Thank you. that a lot. So I think for me, these are also the, the key themes of the readings. So it's really, it's about resources. It's about forms of inequality. It's about how, what you bring from your uh, national original background, how it sort of refracts and changes in the new situation, but how also you don't really lose it eventually. And I think this is also, so I think you have suggested that we first read the article uh, about the Brits at the Costa del Sol. Yes. So can you say something about this? So why did you choose it? And what do you think is the main takeaway from this? Um, I think one of the main takeaways is something, in a sense, we, 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 we already uh, we, we touched uh, a few moments ago, basically the idea that having the right sort of culture actually has an impact on what happens after migration. And we can see in this article how uh, participants with high cultural capital uh, essentially look for culture. So they, they get involved into cultural organizations. Sometimes they launch cultural organizations themselves. Uh, they want to hang out with people who they consider cultured, who have a taste, a good taste for music, theater, and so on. And that slowly recreates, in a sense, British society in Spain with all these class distinctions. And so you have the cultured middle class hanging out together, you have the new riches, uh, and so you have distinctions within the middle classes, but also between the working classes and the middle classes. Uh, a lot of class stigma about uh, uh, working class Britons uh, not working or uh, not being able to do a certain kind of work and so on, not having the right taste, going to the British pubs, which is kind of uh, the class stigma, um, the key class stigma really in Costa del Sol has depicted by the authors. Uh, so one thing really is about the power of taste in this new setting, in recreating previous social structures. Yes, I think that's also what struck me. Um, so I think people from other countries than the UK, like for instance the Netherlands or Belgium, will also recognize this stereotype. Yes. I think there are national colonies of of various northern European countries with the same sort of stigma of people clinging to their uh, national traditions, including rather banal national traditions versus people who really are trying to sort of become more local and hang out with the real traditional authentic, etc. So I think that really uh, struck a chord, not only in resettling, but also in uh, in thinking about, for instance, how people talk about vacations, mm -hmm. which is, of course, a sort of a more temporary version of the same. But what struck me when I was reading it is really the visceral, nasty quality of the way that people draw boundaries. And I was wondering what you make. So is this is this British or... Is this because migration puts everything in a sort of harsher light? Or how would you identify it? Uh, I think it's more about migration per se than Britishness, because I found something similar in my own research and also reading other papers about Polish migration, for example. There is something about migration that makes co-nationals 
highly suspicious of each other. And it's probably be- because of what we just said, because of the fact that you suddenly you... Mm, nationality is considered this kind of a banal connection, this kind of something we have in common, so we are supposed to communicate because of that, but then immediately people want to know what kind of national you are. So um, are you, basically, what's your class background? Where are you coming from? What what did you do before migration? Which is a question that gets asked a lot in this article by participants. So there is this ethos, this late modern ethos of reinvention, individual reinvention, you can start your life again and blah, blah, blah. So we are all individuals. But then immediately there in Spain, the question becomes, yes, but uh, what did you do before? What that person did before? We don't know. So we can't judge. And clearly we want to judge because nationality is not enough for for creating uh, perhaps uh, deeper bond, bond, uh, ties and bonding. Yeah, so you just said something really interesting. You said we want to judge. So can you say something more about that? Because I think that is maybe a summary of the whole study of culture and inequality. So why do we want to judge? That's a really difficult question. Um, but I, I, I see that also with Italians. They, when I did the interviews in my research, people really wanted to judge other Italians. Uh, as soon as the topic of Italianness came up, then it was a discussion about the, the so-called other Italians. And the other Italians is never the person you have in front of you. It's, it's always someone else. And this someone else is always depicted in a very nasty way and in very classed terms. So if you talk with the, the people with high cultural capital, then the other Italian or, or the other Brit, perhaps, is um, is a low-skilled worker who supposes, supposedly... Uh, exploit the the social the social system social welfare uh, or is too lazy and so on all these stigmas of working class culture and then it, when when we talk when you talk with the less resourceful people then it, it becomes this very individualized critique of people who don't want to work so everyone is an extremely yeah. hard worker mm-hmm. and they really have to tell you and at some point at interview number number 50 you ask yourself why you're listening uh, for so, so many times to people really telling you that they work so hard. And what's the point of these discussions? Wh- why this has to be stressed so much? So I haven't really found mm-hmm. an, um, the right sociological answer to why really no. that happens. Is it because of the need to reproduce class structures? Is it other things? I'm not completely sure. I'm still thinking about that. Yeah. It's an interesting, so it. I think it's very clear in all three papers, so that's why, so I think my sort of first impression is that the experience of migration, what it does is sort of puts uh, all sort of social distinctions and categorizations in high relief. Yeah. So because, because this sort of social foundation that is in a settled situation is sort of fixed, it becomes unstable. And my hunch is that as a result, people start, you know, drawing boundaries Uh, on steroids like more than ever because they don't have and I think this is really what struck me most when I when I first read but I think this article on the cost at all soul Brits but others so if you sort of take away the sort of social structures that are stable uh, then people have to sort of build their own boundaries yes and they actually start to do this in a very in a much more extreme sort of fanatic way because the institutions are not there to support them so it all has to happen in interactions um, and I think that's not only because the institutions are missing, but also because, you know, it's, as I said, it's about mobility, right? I think what really comes across that people migrate because they want to somehow do better. Um, so there, there is this infusion also of, of, you know, of a certain sense of competitiveness or at least a striving or achievement yes. that becomes really clear. So it's so that's also so I think what for me was an eye opener that the article on the Brits on the cost also it's also a critique of individualization thesis right yes uh, it's very much because it was published when uh, the work of Beck Giddens and so on was still quite popular and quite dominant perhaps and mm-hmm. the article is part of the growing new sociology of class that started challenging um, late modernity theory and its emphasis on individualization on uh, especially the idea that old social structures are no longer that relevant. Uh, Beck 
or, or someone or someone else. I'm not sure actually. Argued that class was a zombie category. Um, clearly, yeah, that was Beck. That was Beck. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And <laughs> yeah. This clearly that was that was on hindsight a little uh, uh, exaggerated. Yes. And yeah. so he said so. He said so in the I think 2004. Mm. Um, so it's been a while, so just before the crisis, and that was the time, you know, when we could think that the 20th century was really over and everything was starting anew. Yes. But, yeah. So, yeah, it's very much but, about challenging that narrative, which was still very fresh, because the paper is from 2010, so basically, yeah. Yeah, I think this is also a recurring line that we see throughout the podcast, also in the earlier ones, that, that the, the notion that individualization would be the end of cultural capital or social distinctions. And instead, what I think many papers have shown, also papers that we've read in previous episodes, is that so what happens is class doesn't vanish, but it just becomes more subtle. So also the processes of cultural exclusion and boundary drawing become really more hard to grasp. So this is what we see with the omnivores and with yes. the forms of cosmopolitan cultural capital. So it doesn't vanish. It just becomes much more difficult to, to, to learn and to recognize, although with the, again, with the uh, Costadel Soul Brits, uh, it's not very subtle. <laughs> it's not particularly subtle, yeah. Um, so the other thing that um, struck me is the, is the focus on social reproduction <laughs> uh, throughout the so here and in all the other places. And I think that's also interesting because migration, of course, in a sense, seems to be like almost the opposite of social reproduction, right? Yes. It seems to be an attempt to escape the sort of um, repeating of social patterns, but instead, um, so it's there is much more reproduction here than... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and of course, because social mobility is conventionally associated with occupational mobility, um, I'm now thinking especially to the second paper from Humuterel. Uh, there is a lot of uh, social mobility in that paper in terms of um, the participants changing jobs, changing circumstances, but at the same time there is a lot of reproduc reproduction in how much their previous resources have an impact on, uh, especially initially in their migration journey, or what they are able to do, what sort of networks they are able to tap in, uh, and again we see how uh, legitimate culture plays a role with um, uh, at, at least two of the, actually all the three of the biographies, there is very much, they very much show how knowledge of uh, high culture, knowledge of uh, good Turkish language, uh, legitimate culture opens up doors and networks uh, in the UK and in Germany uh, with the right sort of uh, Turkish migrants who have connections, uh, who are professionals, who can provide opportunities. Um, so, that is definitely social reproduction, even if um, the participants might be doing different jobs than what they did in the past. And so there is mobility, there is change, yes. But that change, we might say, is a bit superficial in a sense. Yes, so we have now turned to the paper by Umut Erel. Yes. Who is, um, so from the first, so the first paper was by two British sociologists, I assume. So Umut Orel is also... Uh, Umut Orel works in the UK. Um, I think she's Turkish or German. I'm not sure. I don't want to assume, but she works in the UK. And she has done uh, really thought-provoking and outstanding work about, in a sense, updating cultural capital theory for multicultural or super diverse societies. So basically she has a... Uh, she has studied non-EU migrants, EU migrants, their strategies of social reproduction, but also migrant mothers and how they invest in cultural capital for their children. So she has very much expanded the Bourdieuian agenda about uh, mobility and reproduction um, in relation to migration in a very extensive way. Also, in a very intersectional way, she rarely explores just class, but it is almost always about class gender and other, other divisions, and this paper is very much the most intersectional of the three uh, because uh, it's about Bourdieu, it's about class, but it's, it's also very much about gender and about ethnicity and race. Uh, because, of course, the key difference with the other paper is that now we are talking about uh, migrants who are racialized in Germany and the UK, so they, they, don't, they are not associated with Europeanness, as we said before, uh, but with otherness. So that is an, is an additional disadvantage. 
Yes. So yes. So apart from the key, so the international intersectional <laughs> dimensions that you mentioned, I was also struck by the importance of language mm. here, as as also in a sense a resource or a dimension of intersectionality, uh, and I think well personally for me that is um, something that I. So I tend to stress because I think language is very often uh, really underestimated when it comes to social inequality. I think you may have the same experience as that I have, that being a European uh, who speaks English with, with, with a noticeable accent, um, <laughs> that is a dimension of inequality, also a form of cultural capital that is uh, very often ignored by the very Anglo-centric yes. social science that we have. So I really appreciated the sort of very uh, broad scope of the the sort of the, the various resources that people have uh, that are culture or partly cultural and also how they play out in so very, very different ways. Yes, no, uh, I completely agree. And I, I really think that in this paper, she, she takes the... Um, the dynamism of the concept of cultural capital to its full extent. So we have language, we have uh, uh, an activist habitus, which is learned in uh, feminist uh, movements. And the thing about language, I think the, the analysis of the difference between Turkish and Kurdish language in the paper is, is very exceptional. We see that basically... Um, for some participants, knowing good Tur Turkish language opens door again, uh, networks that can bring professional jobs, whereas Kurdish isn't recognized as a resource, it's not convertible, because it, it, it can be used, for example, in a context of uh, more progressive social policies, in the context of social work, it's not something that is needed for jobs in that sector. Um, and so we, we see really the, the hierarchy uh, between these two different languages and cultures and its historical legacy and how it continues in the UK. Yeah, I thought that was particularly insightful. I think there is the story of the woman who first learns Turkish yes. uh, before she learns English, right? Or was it German? Uh, so has... Is this the, the participant with the, the Kurdish background? Yeah. The second so one. she first learns so she first so she first learns uh so she's Kurdish, she first learns good Turkish and that gives her then access to other networks. Yes. Yes. Which I think is a very interesting uh, analysis of the very complicated ways in which different forms of uh cultural competences play into making it in a way in a new setting. So through the hierarchies first of the place of origin and then onwards to the hierarchies of the um, place of destination in a very complicated way. And that's also, it really puts into relief how how distinct such trajectories are. And as I said, I, th I was really struck by how how analyzing this on this individual level actually lays bare some of the mechanisms. I think I also really, coming to the language, and I really appreciated the rather snarky comment where she made that this woman, who this was in Germany, who was from the sort of um, rather um, high-class... Turkish background, suggesting that maybe they would not have liked her because they would have oh, wanted yeah. other people to speak Kurdish. And I like this sort of the comment that she makes is very often people who actually have capital then would like to sort of suggest that that would actually be their disadvantage, which is the sort of reversal, which is self-serving sort of justifications that people who have specific resources make. I thought that was... Very well observed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I also liked it for these sort of clever sort of asides uh, that show really the, the depth and the complexity of these processes. Yeah, I think what works well in, in that context is because she also uses the concept of field uh, in all its dynamism, so like cultural capital. So yeah. basically a field in this paper is any network that can uh, impact on you in that has a social force on you and that can allows you to convert or not convert resources. So in, in Bordeaux, frequently a field is just an institution or a professional field. Here a field is a group of people, a social movement, an organization. It's very flexible, but that flexibility very much shows how contextual are the conditions uh, under which cultural capital and other capitals are exchanged. So if you change context, then the whole economy changes. Um, and I th think th this comes up very, very strongly in the paper. Yeah, I think it also, this is also highlighted by the fact that she uses both examples from, from Germany and from the UK. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think from from continental Europeans, so specific, so certainly people in the Belgium or the Netherlands, it will be quite an eye opener even to read that Turkish migrants in the UK tend to be sort of uh, political. Uh, high cultural capital, whereas I think in, in most of continental Europe, the image of Turkish migrants tend to be sort of former guest workers, <laughs> their family came over and a third generation. And so it's really so even there that the, the differences between different settings can be large and very fluid and that can really affect how it plays out. Yes. Um, so I think for the German case is very much like what I know from the Netherlands and Belgium and the UK really looks like a different place. So that, you know, changes everything about our understanding of what Turkish is. And it, because of that, also all the other things, you know, everything to do with class and race and, you know, are they so are they racialized and how so are they like us or are they different? Is Turkish even a category? So many of these things really sort of uh, refract Yes. Uh, how people how people sort of manage and how they do in a specific setting. Um, so what what also because it is probably the most complicated article of the three, also in terms of, of theoretical agenda. Um, even though it's sort of it's it's deceptive because it seems maybe simple because of the nice narratives of these women mm -hmm. who make it or who don't who have these. But can you maybe say something about her critique of the rucksack? approach as she calls it yes uh yeah that is more like uh, in relation to migration studies essentially using bourdieu she can criticize essentially the idea that migrants can be reduced to their ethnic identity um and so the idea that ethnicity works as a proxy for the sort of resources and networks that migrants bring with them like in a rush sack um mm -hmm. I, i think is a very nice critique of uh, essentialism Um, yeah. And it, it shows how a Bourdieuian framework can challenge that sort of essentialism, because, of course, what sort of culture migrant brings where they go doesn't necessarily depend on ethnicity, um, but it, it's about their entire social biography. So it's also a way of, in a sense, claiming that migrants are uh, fully fledged social actors and human beings so as all as non-migrants they have class they have gender they have uh, ethnicity and race and so on uh, but you can't really just use uh, one one line of social identity as a proxy of uh, so many other things especially something as big and fuzzy as culture which can also become stigmatizing when the assumption become, becomes that it is the, the wrong sort of culture that they are bringing yeah. in Yes, exactly. So culture uh, in, in migration discourses, I mean, specifically in political migration discourses, has become a rather uh, terrible word, I must say. <laughs> so I think as a cultural sociologist, I'm very often, I'm, I'm really uh, concerned by the way that culture has entered political debate as something that is really essentialized and deeply problematic. So it's if you don't want to talk about race because it's difficult to just say it's in their culture yes. and because it's in their culture, we can change it. So I think culture, insofar as it has played a role in migration studies and in migration de debates, it's been a really... Uh, Um, it's been a really problematic concept, almost like an like a sort of an alternative, like a more polite or alternative for using race or ethnicity or something else, and also but really making it into something very absolute. So all mm -hmm. Turks, all Italians, all are all the same, and I really appreciated the way to use exactly use the notion of culture to destabilize this. So I'm not sure how it has affected policy or public debates, but uh, at least for thinking through its. Uh, I think in the in, in the in the UK, yes, is is still there's still some problems with that in terms of uh, that because culture has that sort of legitimate quality as a word, uh, is still very much used uh, as a way of discussing migrants, uh, but. Basically, as you said, the word culture here is doing the same work that the word race would do, really, is essentializing and is uh, is ranking also, because if you start talking about culture in this very absolute sense, then there are going to be good and bad cultures, so you can rank them, you can have a nice hierarchy, mm -hmm. and we are very much back to colonialism. <laughs> In a sense, <laughs> exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, and it becomes so. Then culture becomes really a sort of a way of a way to draw boundaries. So their culture, our culture, 
And I think this is something that we see everywhere, also within the EU, and I think even within Italy. So I think there is a very strong discourse of the northern and the southern Italians, which mm -hmm. again does this sort of work of uh, essentializing cultural differences rather than opening it up as something that is more dynamic and also uh, yeah, becomes a proxy for other terms that seem less nice. Because culture, of course, still sounds nice, like friendly and charming and, you know, it's, it's nicely common and sense. Costumes and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that brings us uh, to your own uh, article, uh, which is also about migration and culture, but in a different way altogether. So with the uh, Italians who came after the crisis of 2008. So can you tell me about something about how this article came to be and what you want to say? So that? essentially, this is part of a larger project. As I said, it was very much about trying to apply Bourdieu post-crisis uh, migration to the UK, which is, by the way, essentially the, the migration wave I'm part of, in a sense. Um, but because this, I was very much inspired by Erel's work on biographies, and I wanted to try to use a similar method. Um, so I very much um, interviewed, the idea was to interview people who came to the UK with different sorts of capitals. And I used, of course, education as a kind of proxy uh, for class background, especially education before migration. Uh, so I interviewed the, the classic graduate migrants, but also people who moved to the UK with vocational training, with high school degrees and so on. How social aging became an issue is really something that just emerged gradually in the analysis because people kept referring to this idea of uh, becoming 30, so entering your 30s, as something important. And I, I slowly realized that how people evaluated their social mobility through migration, but also before migration, had a lot to do with their understanding of age. So essentially, there is, this, there is still this post-war narrative about aging that um, is still very influential, that essentially says, around your 30s, you should become an adult. And what that means in terms of social position, uh, it means, have, in Italy especially, having a house, like owning a house, buying at least buying a house, being able to buy a house, a stable job, uh, stable residency, so adult, all these markers of stability, so socioeconomic stability. Um, and this idea was very much powerful among my participants, to the point that some of them actually moved to the UK because they felt that um, they were, in a sense, out of sync with this narrative about the life curse. They were beyond their 30s, or they were approaching their 30s, and they were afraid that they were not going to become adult in the socioeconomic sense, so that, that had an impact on the decision to migrate. For others, uh, the problem manifested after migration, so they they hoped to reach that sort of sync between social aging and social mobility, uh, but that didn't happen, usually because the sort of jobs they had access to uh, didn't bring the required economic capital to get to that sort of uh, socioeconomic adulthood, and so... Um, then they felt out of sync with this life course narrative. So they were in their late thirties, by the, they were sharing house, uh, they were sharing houses, and then that was not something an adult is supposed to be. And so I, I developed this idea of sync, out of sync, this idea of synchrony to make sense of the disconnection between movement in social time, so getting older, and the social meaning of it and movement in social space in the Bourdieuian sense, so literally social mobility in terms of accumulating and losing capitals. Yes, so um, so I really, really appreciated this. I have more questions about this, but before we go to the paper, I think you're, of the three papers that we read for this session, I think it's noticeable that you're the only one who really identifies as a cultural sociologist. Yes. Right? <laughs> So how would you, can you say something about how uh, how this makes this really a cultural sociological paper than, rather than a migration studies paper? So where is the culture here? The key difference is the, well, a number of things really. One is the framing of the paper. The paper is, is an intervention in a, a growing body of work about social mobility, which is exploring the experience of social mobility. A lot of this work is being conducted by cultural sociologists such as Nicola Ingram, Sam Friedman and so on. 
Um, so it's an intervention in that debate. It's a debate where essentially cultural sociologists have, have started challenging uh, a more traditional focus on social mobility, which was essentially about uh, um, intergenerational rates of social mobility, so a predominantly quantitative focus. So that is the framing of the paper is one thing. The other thing is the concept of symbolic boundaries from Lamont and Molnar, um, which I used to make sense of uh, the distinction between adulthood and youth that the participants use um, in, in the interviews. And that for me is very much an age-based an age distinction or a time-based symbolic boundary. And Lamont and Molnar in their seminal paper discuss how time can become a basis for symbolic boundaries, even though time-based or age-based symbolic boundaries haven't really been explored in cultural sociology. So the, the paper wants to be also an opening for that kind of uh, research about uh, age-based or time-based symbolic boundaries. Yeah, so can you give me maybe a few more examples? Because I think that's probably the more abstract of your claims. So time-based and age-based social boundaries or symbolic boundaries? Well, the, the one that I use in the paper is essentially the idea that um, because there is a narrative script about becoming an, an adult and becoming older, uh, this narrative script tells us something about how we do social mobility or social reproduction, uh, then this script can become a source for distinctions. And so if I know that I have to become an adult in a certain way, um, then I have a distinction between youth and, adult and adulthood that is also a socioeconomic distinction. So a young person uh, won't, won't have, uh, for example, um, uh, won't own or won't be able to buy a house, won't have a stable job, perhaps will have a more precarious job. There is, for example, this idea that a non-stable job might be even desirable if you are still young, because it's part of a, it's a sort of self-exploration, whereas... So that was the example of the, the bartender, right? Yes. So yeah. the, the third participant I explore in this paper, um, contrary to the other two I analyze in the paper, he, he didn't move abroad because he was feeling out of sync with social aging, because he was feeling too old for the sort of economic insecurity he was experiencing. Uh, he just moved abroad, in a sense, out of curiosity. So this is someone without a degree, with vocational training, not someone with high cultural capital, uh, in a sense, with a low middle class sort of background. Um, and f he was working as a bartender after two years in, the, in, in Birmingham. He hadn't really experienced anything that you could call social mobility in any objective sense. But still, his narrative was very upbeat because... Um, the idea was still that he was exploring new possibilities. And at some point he says, well, you know, until I don't get 30, nothing stops me. Because, of course, the idea is, and he said quite explicitly, you know, you can be a bartender for so much, but after your 30s, I want to do something different, something more stable. But for now, this is okay. I am exploring. I'm seeing new places. I'm doing new experiences. Uh, I moved away from the small town I grew up into. So there was a sense of cosmopolitanism. And so mm -hmm. the possibility for that upbeat sense of exploration is this idea that until you are 30, that's fine. You are exploring. You are not a fully formed person and you don't need to have those sort of socioeconomic markers of status uh, of adulthood so what sort of so what sort of boundary drawing so this is actually because this seems like an upbeat and also it it stood out in the readings for today that this was someone who didn't seem to judge much right i mean many others they have this sort of strong sense of i'm doing this and all the others are doing this and i'm really proud of myself for doing so much better than all the others and i think this bartender was interesting because he didn't i didn't get the sense of this sort of boundary, or did I miss something? Uh, well, in, in other occasions in the interview, he, he, he drew that sort of distinction between the Italians who don't want to work hard and the Italians who, who do. Um, but again, because uh, partly because he was in the UK, he had been in the UK only for a couple of years, partly because of this age discourse, um, he could still present his experience as in the making. So this was an experience that was unfolding. And so um, everything was open-ended. And the fact of being still 
conventionally young um, reinforced the the justification for that. Um, the, the, he certainly didn't feel judged by me. I was I don't think I was judging him, but mm -hmm. this idea that he was a, just a young European uh, exploring was absolutely fine, and, and it's, it, it was very commonsensical. It made sense. Um, but he made very clear that you can't do what I'm doing when you are 50. That's not that's not appropriate. Something is wrong with that. Because then it would be sad or it would be sad, painful. It, it could yeah. be framed as failure. Whereas, even if he wasn't able to progress in his job while he was in the UK, that isn't failure. That is just the things happening, the things unfolding. It's open ended. He's still young and yeah. so on. So. Yeah, so that's actually the theme that that the theme of success and failure. I think that is very interesting. Of course, very much implicated in anything to do with with migration, right? I mean, if you want to migrate, you go to a better place. You want to do well. So there is the hope for success and the possibility of failure. Uh, but what is interesting, of course, is that failure and success are cultural categories. Yes. So what does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to fail? And this, of course, I think this comes out very clearly in your paper, but also in the others, that there are really clear understandings of success and failure that are, uh, you know, that, that seem to vary with, with sort of social position and cultural background. So including stories about age and aging, which is interesting because um, they are, they, because they, they be, have this sort of, sense of being set in stone like you know when you're 30 you have to buy a house and i i also see this that many of my students keep telling me today you know i'm not i'm 30 or 35 and i need to buy a house and i think that's really interesting because for me that was a narrative that wasn't there when i was 30. uh so having grown up in the netherlands in a place where with at that time not anymore but at that time really really good social housing uh this whole narrative of buying a house as a mark of adulthood was was not there. I mean, it was nice if you could, but I think the narrative was you have to somehow get on one of these waiting lists and get yourself a house. Mm. So this was um, a sort of a cultural narrative that was was infused by, by you know, by by a, a sort of a welfare state uh, that that really reorganized these sorts of narratives in very different ways. So nobody thought about buying a house. I mean, which I'm, honestly, that was a very. Uh, um, uh, bourgeois thing to want to do and also a little look down upon so really not something that especially if you have a life as a bartender and you know when you live in Europe why would you <laughs> why would you worry about buying a house so it's really interesting how how these narratives also are culturally grounded and of course culture also grounded in a specific economic shift you know from yes. sort of welfare states to to a more neoliberal system where indeed success and failure is really is about uh, yeah, no, money. I, I see that also in the case of Italy, for example, why my participants were so concerned with buying a house is partly also because in the post-war years, buying a house was the mark of respectability for both the working classes and the middle classes. And so the fact of not, not being able to buy a house, something that for your parents was so obvious, um, is pretty much a shock and very much upsets this life course narrative about what it means to become an adult. And so migration because it becomes the promise of actually being able to do that, partly because, and this is another narrative actually, um, the idea that the UK is this place which is more meritocratic so you will be rewarded for your hard work and in a sense you will be rewarded precisely uh, being able to access this more traditional notion of adulthood. Um, but the, here we really have another intersection between uh, the social aging script and the sort of uh, ethno-racial scripts of Europe really about southern and northern Europe. So the idea that northern Europe is always this place where uh, things work uh, better um, in a more efficient way and so meritocracy is the catchphrase that especially after the crisis has become associated with North Europe so what happens in North Europe well you know they don't have the EU castigating them because there is meritocracy so the, the, this kind of public discourse yeah so we will talk about these these um, cultural beliefs about inequality also later on in the podcast but I think that really very strongly infuses uh, how people see 
um, inequality. And there's also the underlying notions of success and failure. And I really appreciated how thinking about this in terms of migration really sort of foregrounds this because the sort of the timeline and the narrative of going from one place to another sort of brings out uh, many of the cultural assumptions that people have about inequality and also about fairness and justice and individual responsibility. So there's a lot in there. Uh, so as we are nearing the ending of at least the discussion of the papers, um, so I would like to have ask you two questions. So where do we go from here? So we're now we've this is a new field like you're opening up. So after this, where do we go as uh, scholars or as a field? There are a number of things really. One thing I've been thinking about is of course. Um, Having done work on uh, Italian migrants and having seen a lot of work on EU migrants now emerging that has looked into class distinctions and so on, there isn't actually a lot of work. Uh, uh, Umutrel's work is actually an exception in a sense, but there isn't a lot of work on uh, either non-EU migrants or racialized uh, migrant groups and basically how um, dynamics of class distinction intersect with ethnicity and race. Uh, this is very much something that hasn't been central, neither in cultural sociology, but not really also in migration studies where class remains pretty, th there isn't really a class analysis, I would say, if not in more, the more traditional sense of a class has income or occupational status. Um, sometimes Bourdieu, Bourdieu is quite popular, but interestingly, isn't necessarily used in, in a class analysis mood, but you see a lot of paper with cultural capital, but what they really mean is human capital and is not connected mm -hmm. with dynamics of inequality or habitus and the broader theoretical framework of Bourdieu. So that really, so really cultural capital is like a shorthand for education plus some other useful stuff that you learn from your parents, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. It yeah. is not defined in the same way as we define it in cultural sociology yeah. also. Cultural taste actually is something that hasn't been explored a lot in relation to migration. Um, it's something that there are very few papers about. And there is one paper that we, um, in a special issue I edited with Noah Lavi, there was one paper that, only one that discussed um, how cultural taste is used by migrants to, in terms of strategies of social mobility. I think that is something that would be interesting to I would be interested to see more or to research more by myself. Um, to what extent really taste does its magic when you are upper middle class and you have that kind of uh, refined taste or, or omnivore taste, but you're also a migrant and perhaps a racialized migrant. So does that work in the way the literature tells you it works? So it, it, it's still um, a smooth mechanism of social reproduction or other things happen and it is not that simple. So th that is a question definitely for future research. Yes, so lots of work to do. So what about the real world? So now you talk about the implications for academics, but what is, so what if we asked a sort of so what question? Uh, so why could other people, students, but also, you know, average people outside of universities, what, why is this important? I think because before we were saying that the real world is very much about migration and culture in that absolute sense, I think this kind of research very much opens up the possibility for a different narrative, which is about unequal migrations, really. So migrations are always unequal and uh, uh, shaped by differences and diversities. Um, and so trying, I, I think this kind of academic research can uh, lead to a narrative where we are able to unpack a little bit this common sense understanding of culture, usually tied to ethnicity, uh, and to really much um, popularize a bit more the idea that migrants are social actors or more simply human beings. And uh, as non like non-migrants, they have other social uh, characteristics and they have complex social biographies. And so we, we need to think about migration not in terms of uh, homogeneous migrant groups, but in terms of uh, differences and inequalities much more. Yes, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that's especially as migration is well not only increasingly seen as this sort of as a as a large problem involving homogeneous masses of people, you know, uh, cluttering at the borders and sort of uh, threatening to swamp whatever, but also. Migration is clear. It's not only increasing, but it's also changing shape, 
right? I mean, we already see that the, the, the flows of migration are moving in different ways. So I think that also helps us. So we really need to think through how it works because as it changes, for instance, as it moves in different directions, the cultural exchanges that are involved in that also will change as well as the inequalities. And I keep thinking, I mean, there might actually be a point where Europeans have to think about migration not as something that comes to Europe, but also as Europeans going in another way. I think that respect your the Italian experience is interesting uh, because I think especially in Northwest Europe, we tend to think of migration as, you know, they come to us, but we don't we don't go to them. We don't go there. I think this understanding really needs could could do with some uh, destabilization. Yes, no, definitely. Yeah. So I have, before we go to the ending, so as, as all speakers, I have asked you to prepare some discussion questions or assignments for students. So can you say something about what you would like students to do with your... Uh... Yeah, uh, I thought about the three questions for discussion that in a sense uh, connect the three papers and uh, bring students to think about similarities and differences across the three papers. So one question is in what ways does class travel across national borders? Uh, what are the key processes of class reproduction discussed in three articles? And you may want to think about these questions in relation to each single concept, so economic and cultural capital, habitus, social distinction, symbolic boundaries. So how uh, each of these concepts help us think about migration in a different way. The other question is, uh, is uh, does migration always lead to upward social mobility? Uh, for example, what do RLs and my articles suggest about the relationships between social and geographical mobility? Um, and what might be uh, the problems of classifying migrants according to their legal status and or ethnicity? Uh, why do we need to take other social differences into account? This very much connects with the last point we were discussing about trying to, uh, I guess, demigrantize migration. So, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that these are very challenging questions. I what I like about them, they're both theoretical, so you can really use them in theoretical terms. But they can also, I think, be connected to the personal experiences of students, especially when we have students with some sort of migration background. I think which is increasingly common these days, especially with international students. This is the takeaway for students. So these are assignments you can do individually or in groups um, with professors around or without, as always. The ending to conclude. Today, we talk with Simona Variale about culture and migration as a new lens to think through culture, but also to integrate migration into the understanding of inequality and to de destabilize our understandings of migration. So this was actually a big theoretical agenda, I must say, hidden in what seemed like very... Uh, real-life narratives of people's experiences. So what, So the final question is also, what, after this discussion or these readings, what can't let you go uh, this week? So what is the thing that you will keep thinking about after this conversation? I think I'll, uh, something you said during the conversation, that because migration destabilizes so much um, individual lives and, in a sense, habitus and field, it's a very key topic for theoretical innovation in various areas of cultural sociology because, uh, be because of the things that it, it brings to the fore, because of the things that it upsets and challenges. So I would leave, I would leave it with that, if that sounds okay. right. Yes, thank you. So what, what I can't let go for this week is, so the, is the, the, the uh, connection between cultural inequality and social mobility, which I think was really, really strongly foregrounded in our discussion. And also the what I will, will continue thinking about is that social mobility is, of course, um, influenced by understandings of success and failure. And these understandings of success and failures are, of course, they are culturally specific stories about the good life, about where you want to go and what you don't want to be. So I think this is also something that, that I will take to all the other readings, that, that the narrative and the time dimension and the social mobility dimension, they all sort of inflect processes into our thinking about cultural inequality, but they also lead us to think, so what is it actually that people want? if they are looking to move ahead in life. And that's actually not as self-evident as, uh, 
as we think it is. So I think that was really the eye-opener for me. Yeah. Uh, so, Simone, I want to thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great pleasure. Um, I hope to find another way to see you in real life. <laughs> Uh, even though podcasts are nice, I prefer real interactions. So for the next podcast, we have a discussion with Julian Schaap and Joe Haynes about race, ethnicity and gender in popular music, which actually is your old topic, yes. right? Yes, uh, so- I'll listen to that with great interest. <laughs> yes, okay, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.